Amen. Uh, here in Psalm 24, uh, it opens with this great reminder uh, that ultimately uh, that God is the sovereign one over this world. When it says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it, and he has founded it upon a seas and established it upon the rivers. Uh, we don't often immediately hear this in the context of when this would have been written in David's time, but surrounding the nation of Israel were many different uh, other nations who had their own gods, and most of them believe, as they looked upon creation, that the different aspects of creation represented different gods. And so a god of the seas, and a god of the sky, and a god of the underworld, and a god of the sun, and a god of the moon. And they, they had this sense that there were many, many different gods, and that a lot that was experienced in this world was because there was conflict between them. And that there was at times, therefore, a sense of chaos, because not only were things broken in this world, but it was broken, if you will, in the heavenlies. And there was uh, an ongoing battle that nobody knew what the outcome or the result of it would be. And Psalm 24 enters into that world and said, it's all the Lord's. There are not many different gods who are in conflict with one another, but everything, the earth and the fullness thereof and the world and the seas and the rivers, it all comes from him, from his sovereign power over all of creation. And what the Jews then believe in God's creation of all things as the one God ruling and reigning over it is that it was not created in conflict or in chaos, but in purposefulness and in beauty and excellence. And so the psalm is a reminder that when we do look on the world, we acknowledge that this is God's good world. He made it this way on purpose. And there's a beauty to the diversity of the way in which uh, every one of us looks and appears. Uh, we were on a, on a walk uh, two days ago and uh, were uh, interacting with a neighbor who they're about to have their second child and they, their oldest is a boy and they're about to have another boy. And so... We could say to them, we have three boys, but let me just tell you right away, they're all totally different. <laughs> Every one of your child, the children is a unique personality with unique characteristics. And there's a joyfulness in learning that about them. And then when we look on the natural world and see the diversity of vegetation, of flowers, of, all, of colors in God's creation, it is a purposeful and excellent and glorious and beautiful God who has created this world. And so our Bibles open in Genesis with the declaration of God's creation and then the, the repetition again and again that as these things were created, there's this uh, appreciation for it that he created it good and he created it good and he created it good. And we live in this good world. We are a part of that. Now, we know that doesn't mean everything in this world is good or that everything that happens is good, but it is helpful for us to remember, even many of us who've grown up familiar with the scriptures can sort of enter the story a little bit later on and forget how the story begins. And so our primary way of thinking about ourselves and, and, and what we hear often is, well, we're sinners, and we are. 
The Bible says that each and every one of us are. And that means each and every one of us do things that we have to ask forgiveness for and it makes our relationships with one another difficult. We are sinners. But if we forget that we were originally created good and by a good God, we can even misunderstand sin itself. And so if anybody thinks, well, God just doesn't love me, he doesn't want me, I don't know why I'm here, we would as Christians say, no, 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 wait a minute, whatever sin you might feel guilty of or whatever isolation you might feel from others, don't forget the, the foundation, the basics, that you're only here because he made you, because he's given you the gift of life. And he has done that out of love, out of goodness, out of kindness, out of joy, not out of vengefulness, not out of anger, and however much sin might infect our own hearts and lives and however much it might uh, affect relationships around us, we, we shouldn't lose sight of the goodness that God has put into each and every one of us and into the world around us. And so part of what we grieve over sin is that sin damages or distorts that goodness. Uh, it mars the beauty that's originally there. But that beauty isn't each and every one of us. And that's one of the basic convictions of a Christian worldview that everybody here and everybody we don't know that are simply strangers to us, whatever they believe, even whatever God they serve, where, whatever their background was, whatever their tomorrow is going to look like, we believe that every human life is sacred. That, that a price tag cannot be put on it. That it is valuable and precious to the God who made it. And we believe that because we believe it's the same God who's created each and every one of us. And when we look upon the environment itself and nature itself and appreciate its beauty and we take care of uh, the environment and the nature that has been placed around us, again, we do that as a reflection, not where we start to worship people or worship nature, but if we believe all of it is a reflection of one God who made and designed each and every one of us, that all of the fullness of the earth belongs to him, then anyone we meet and almost every experience we have in this world can lead us to worship him. Because we can say this is a reflection of God's good world. This is the beauty in which he has placed uh, within this world. And we can enjoy it. We can enjoy good food and good fellowship and good and fun experiences uh, that many of us have a unique way of enjoying in the summertime. And we can do all of those things, not as a way to ignore God or get away from him, but if we allow it, they can actually draw us closer to him as we appreciate them as the good gifts that come from his hand. And then the next thing that the psalm reminds us of is that this, this is God's good world and that our God reminds us of God's good character. And so what, what is God like who made all of this goodness and this beauty and this excellence around us? Uh, we're reminded here in verses 3 through 6, he is holy, that he is pure, that he does not delight in any hypocrisy or falsehood or deception or lying. And so there's the good world that he made, and when we think of him and who he is, again, our thoughts are to be that God is good, and God is good all the time. The way James would put it in the New Testament is uh, that 
we believe that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Let nobody, when they're tempted, think that they're being tempted by God, that he's ever the one who's trying to get us to lie or to get us to steal or to get us to cheat. That's not who he is. He's good all the way through. He's good all the time. It's, it's part of his nature that he is a good God of integrity. And so he does not delight in our sinfulness, in our disobedience, in our deception, or our lying. And so as we come to him, we're supposed to come to him in truth and in honesty. Which again, we might miss here and say, oh no, I, I'm not good enough to come. I mean, there, it's rhetorically asked in the psalm, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could stand in his holy place? And every one of us should actually, if we're honest and we know our struggles, say, I'm not sure I can. I am not as holy as he is. I am not as pure. I am not as good. But as we've been going through this psalm and as we've even reminded ourselves of the, the one who's written many of these in the person of David, David knows he's not perfect. David knows he is uh, not holy within and of himself. But David also knows that there's a way even in our sinfulness, if we're willing to repent and to be honest and open before the God, we can come with him with purity of heart, which doesn't mean without any possible error or mistake on our part, but purity in a sense of we can come to a place where we singularly, purely, and passionately want a relationship with the God who made us. We can, even in our brokenness, seek after him, long for him. And if we do, the encouragement is, don't try to fake it. <laughs> don't act better than you are. Come openly, come honestly about who you are, about what your struggles are. Come acknowledging him and his goodness and who he is. There's no benefit in lying. He's the one person we can't trick or deceive but all of us are invited to come to him we just have to come to him in certain ways we can't come to him any way we want and it's helpful for us to remember that that he is so good in his character that his goodness requires of us a, a, a certain way in which we approach him but not that we wouldn't approach him but that we would approach him in the right way. We make no progress with God and no progress with one another if we approach one another in deception or if we approach one another in dishonesty. Whatever relationship is built, whatever goodness is formed, we know it's fleeting because it's not based and founded on the truth. And so each and every one of us who believe that this is his good world and that he's a person of good character should desire to come to him with the very integrity that has drawn us to him, right? Because why would we want to come to him if we thought he was going to lie to us like everybody else? Why would we want to ascend the hill if we thought he was going to take advantage of us like other people do? It's because of his goodness that we want to come to him because <laughs> he's the one true and pure and holy uh, person out there who has never lied to us and never let us down. And if that's what draws us to him, then we should desire to come to him honestly and openly 
desiring to be pure, desiring to have clean hands, to be forgiven of whatever it is we need to be forgiven for, and no longer trying to deceive anybody else around us. And as we ascend that hill, there's this sense that even everything that we see in creation that reveals his goodness and his good character, that there's an even greater glory that he has. That the goodness that we experience in this world is still only a glimpse of God's great glory. Right? There were a few disciples that got to experience these, these different levels where they were with Jesus regularly. They heard his teaching. They saw how he interacted with people. They saw his goodness. They were attracted to it. They were following after him. But then he took three of them up a mountain and he was transfigured in such a way that they were just absolutely stunned. Oh, wow. He's even more glorious than we realize. And he is. And so if we're drawn to him by the goodness that we see, imagine how much more when the greater and the greater glory is revealed. And so then the, the psalm goes on to, to have this sense of anticipation. Lift up your heads, O gates. This is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. He's uh, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. That if we approach him rightly, that we can experience deeper and deeper levels of his glory. The glories of this world that we have, even in our own lives, we, we experience as fading glories. We know that they're short and limited. Whatever it is that we can accomplish. Uh, someone texted me two days ago when Djokovic won the semifinals in, in the French Open and said, is the sermon going to be really short on Sunday? Because now the finals are happening and he has a chance to make history. And I was like, oh, yes, maybe it will be. And it is not feeling like it's going to be at this point in time. But if anybody wants to give me a thumbs up to just or down to let me know how it's going, there's an event that I'm very interested in that will have this sense of, wow, this has never happened before. Or watching in the NBA Finals and seeing uh, a triple-double for the first time uh, in NBA Finals history and, and getting to see it and say, wow, that's amazing to see something that hasn't happened before. But in all those things, you know that they only last for so long. Our human achievements and our human glory fades eventually over time. Uh, this morning, uh, it was our middle son who was the first to wake up, and he came down, and so we were sitting on the couch together really, really close, and so he was just looking right uh, closer to me than normal, if you will, and so he notices he was looking at the side. He's like, Dad, I see some gray hair, <laughs> and I said, yeah, there's, there's more and more. I said, your daddy's turning into an old man. And I said, I'm just going to try as long as I can to do what I can to keep up with you guys. And he goes, oh, I already have way more hair than you do. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not talking about hair. I'm just everything. I'm just going to try energy-wise, whatever, to keep up with you for as long as I can. Um, but he was looking at me and seeing uh, a fadingness. Uh, to, I don't even have glory to fade, but... All of us experience that in life where whatever we feel like we can achieve mentally, academically, physically, we know there's a limited window to it. Whereas with God, the goodness that we experience points to a greater glory that will never diminish and only be magnified. And so the psalm ends with this like, 
Come on, everybody, get into it. Get ready. Like, open the doors. Let the glory come in. The king is coming, the one who is strong and mighty in battle. There's a sense that uh, God's great glory leads to our great joy, that let's worship this great God because this isn't going to be an accomplishment that's then surpassed two years later by somebody else or 10 years later by somebody else or this person will see in their prime all of a sudden will fade. No, this is the God who's created and made it all and his glory will never and ever diminish. And so let's come, let's celebrate that glory. Let's experience it in even deeper and better ways. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4 where I think there's a powerful way in which Psalm 24 is manifested in the encounter that Jesus has with a woman at the well. where most of these truths are brought home to somebody that the disciples themselves think is a most unlikely of characters. So John chapter 4, this is on page 835 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. We won't read in its entirety, uh, but picking up in verse 4, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And we'll pause there for a moment. So the lady herself is surprised that Jesus would even talk to her, that there had been such historical animosities between her people and his people that uh, for many of them, they question whether the other people's lives were valuable or not. And so Jesus' willingness to speak with her, to reveal to her that she's still part of God's good creation, That she is not simply because she's a Samaritan or simply because she's a woman, therefore excluded. She's part of the fullness of the earth that belongs to the Lord who's founded it all. And so he knows her by name. But he, he reveals to her that there is even greater glory than the things that she wants. And so then in verse 16, it continues. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here in this section, Jesus reveals to her his good character, that he knows her story, that initially just simply speaking to her and encountering her, he knew and communicated to her that she was part of his good creation. But he also affirmed his good character when he said, I know you've been married five times, which I was challenged by another uh, pastor in the city. It was Bishop Joey Johnson from the House of the Lord. He said, we often teach this uh, story and we talk about how, um, how sinful the woman was because she'd had all of these different marriages when in reality, in her day, she had no right or legal authority to divorce. And so rather than looking her primarily as somebody who herself was constantly moving on from relationship to relationship, she was more likely somebody who had been regularly abused and taken advantage of. And so Jesus is coming to her and saying, I want to offer you living water. I'm someone who's here not for what I can get from you or how I can manipulate the situation, but in truth, in honesty, in who you are and who God is so that she doesn't run with a sense of anger. I can't believe you told me my past. She's like, you're different. (laughs) I perceive you're a prophet. You know things other people don't know. And then when he finally reveals that he is the Christ, the Messiah who's come, she responds the way Psalm 24 ends. She goes about her town and says to everybody, open the doors, lift up the gates. He's come, he's here, he's good. And he's inviting us to worship him in spirit and in truth, to come with clean hands and pure hearts and to encounter him. And to experience that in all the goodness he's revealed and in all the brokenness we're dealing with, he's inviting us back to him. He's come for us. The king of glory has come. And so let's celebrate. Let's embrace him. Let's give our lives to him. And as you continue to read John 4, it says many of her people came to believe in him because of her joy in telling people, about the glory of the king that would never, ever fade. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals to us that you have created each and every one of us. In our own sinfulness and shame, we do regularly question whether we are valuable, whether anybody cares, whether anybody knows the different things we go through. And we thank you for the reminder that you know that you care, that each of us is a part of your purposeful and beautiful creation. 
And we also thank you that you know about the hardships that we experience in this life. You know the ways we have ourselves been guilty of sin, and you know about all the ways we've been sinned against. And so we don't feel like we can ascend your hill. We don't feel like we can draw close at times. And so we pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, continue to draw us to yourself. Help us to be honest and uh, pure before you. Help us to not be false and hypocritical. And Father, help us to find greater joy in your glory rather than our own glory. In the, in the goodness of what you can do that lasts forever instead of the, the small things that we can do that only last for a time. Father, we thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. And we thank you for drawing us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.